We are about halfway through our fall sermon series on the first letter to the church in Corinth. We've explored the concept of calling, the importance on focusing on the message of the gospel instead of the messenger, and how countercultural grace can and ought to be. The church community in Corinth was so diverse and coming from such different ways of thinking about practicing faith that there was a lot of conflict. Today's scripture addresses conflict that was happening about how the church members celebrated the Lord's Supper. Communion was observed very differently back then. It was more like an elaborate meal than a brief ritual. If you've ever heard of a dinner church today, it's a bit more like that. People gathered at tables and shared a meal that included the retelling of the story of Jesus' Last Supper, but also included fellowship and prayer. But the Corinthians were having trouble defining the purpose of their gathering, and we see that confusion play out in their behavior. Listen now for the word of God. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God of radical resurrection, we ask you to meet us here in this word. Show us what our hearts and minds need to know. Quiet the distractions within and without, so that we might sense your presence draw near. Shape us, in and through this, your holy word, into the people you dreamt of at creation. Amen. So as we've noted the past couple weeks, Paul was writing to this diverse community of Christians who were really struggling how to figure out how to do life together. Social status and religious background were contributing to some of the biggest conflicts, as most community members had become followers of Jesus as adults. They were coming together with years of ingrained behaviors and beliefs, some of which adapted easily to the Christian faith, but many others caused a lot of tension within the community. And one of those ingrained behaviors is the subject of today's text. The Corinthians were gathering for worship and meals that ought to reflect the Last Supper, but instead they were treating it more like a typical social dinner party. Now, Jesus loved his dinner parties, but the problem with that in that time was that it was common in that era for dinners to emphasize a social hierarchy that privileged the wealthy and powerful above and over anyone else. 
dining rooms usually accommodated eight to 10 people and other lower status guests would be hosted in the outer courtyard. The food and drink in the inner room would be of a better quality than it was offered outside. And besides that social hierarchy, this report had reached Paul about some Corinthians, how they would arrive early and quickly eat lots of food and drink so much wine that they became drunk, which meant there was not enough food or drink for all who gathered. It also meant they had lost touch with the story that they were supposed to be retelling and remembering. They lost touch with their purpose. So Paul's response, I think, is pretty understandably strong and visceral. What? (laughs) Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. He was appalled that they would have so little regard for each other during this ritual that was meant to remind participants of the immense sacrifice of Jesus. Paul was driving home this idea that how the church gathered was just as important as the content of their gathering. Now, I am happy and grateful to report that no one at Old Pine, to my knowledge, gets drunk on our non-alcoholic communion juice. No one at Old Pine, in my memory, has raced to the communion table and hoarded all of Anne's amazing home-baked bread for themselves. Even at coffee hour or a picnic, no one here would be so rude as to eat all the food and leave their siblings hungry. Even in the way that we celebrate communion here, I always see a lot of kindness. We allow others to go first. We make sure that children are participating. We make sure that everyone has a chance to receive the elements. So so why did the Corinthians have such a problem with this? What was their deal? What would make them hoard food and wine like that? Paul wrote that they all had homes and enough to eat there, so this behavior wasn't born of some unspoken need. Were they just more concerned with partying than practicing their faith? I think it goes a little deeper than that. I wonder if the Corinthians acted that way out of a subconscious anxiety. See, when there's scarcity, we tend to cling to what's in front of us, and we notice the same things in ourselves today. When our resources are threatened, we hold on to them tighter. When we worry that there won't be enough, we hoard whatever we can grasp, even if we have a roof over our head and food on our table at home. And on an even broader level, we begin to disregard the welfare of others when something in our lives has disrupted the norm and we are afraid. Now, we normally think of disruption as a negative thing, losing our job or becoming ill or grieving a loved one. But disruptions can also be positive. The beginning of a new job, the birth of a child, moving to a new place. For the Corinthians, the gospel of Jesus Christ was a disruption, a holy disruption. It upended all they thought they knew about how the world worked how God related to them, how they ought to relate to one another. It was good news. It was life-giving. It was joyful and freeing, but it was also destabilizing. Deconstructing a belief system and building something new, that is hard work. So perhaps the Corinthians clung to their social hierarchy not because they didn't love each other, 
but because it offered a certain structure that was familiar. Following Jesus had brought with it so much change that perhaps they struggled to change their way of sharing meals. Perhaps it was easier to ignore the needs of others because they were even out of sight in that courtyard. And so Paul was challenging them to reckon with the reality that following Jesus was not just agreeing to a handful of beliefs and calling it a day. Following Jesus meant changing how one lived every day, even at dinner parties. And even, especially, when gathered to worship God and remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So, if here at Old Pine no one is guilty of hoarding the communion food, where is the challenge and the good news for us in this text? I think today we are struggling with two significant disruptions that relate to this text. The first is the same one that the Corinthians experience. We have been changed. We have been drawn in and affected by the person of Jesus Christ. If you have encountered God, you have felt both the weight of your own guilt and shame and the lightness of heart that comes with receiving the utterly free gift of grace. Your life has been changed. Your priorities have shifted. No longer are you caught up in pursuing things that do not last, money and power and pleasure. You have been given the things that are eternal, love and deep joy, peace and generosity. You are constantly being invited to cultivate those things in your life and the lives of others, despite a culture that tells you you're foolish to do so. So that's one disruption. That's one change that we're dealing with. And the other one is also perhaps unsurprising. It's very different, but it has similar implications. The COVID-19 pandemic. No one, regardless of their faith, their age, their gender, their orientation, their race, even their economic status to some regard, has remained untouched by the pandemic. Some have been impacted far more than others, but it is a reality that has affected all of life in a myriad of ways. And we're living in this strange season right now where many people are treating the pandemic as if it's over, despite the realities of new infections and deaths every day. But even if we do acknowledge those realities, which I hope that we do, something about this season still feels really different than the fall of 2020 or even the fall of 2021. The pandemic shed a painful light on the inequities of our society. We lost loved ones, jobs, health, traditions, and norms. Things have changed. The challenge of this text, both for those of us experiencing the holy disruption of following Jesus and all of us grappling with the changes on the other side of this pandemic, is that we can't go back. The Corinthians couldn't go back to their old social customs as comforting as that certainty and structure was because they had been changed. Following Jesus meant going forward into new territory, distributing resources evenly, ensuring that everyone had enough. It meant uncertainty and newness. But those changes also brought with them deeper relationships with each other and with God. Those changes brought new experiences of love, new joys that made the grief of loss easier to bear. Things have changed here at Old Pine, too. 
Some things we have brought back, like singing together and in-person and hybrid education programs and committee meetings, but in a lot of other ways, there are some things that we just can't go back to. And clinging to what was only brings division and more sorrow, which is what the Corinthians experienced. Our Romans text today talks about how we have died and been raised with Christ, that the old things have passed away and we have been invited into a new way to live. Both of these texts today remind us that we can't compartmentalize our spiritual life, that everything is connected and everything is changed by this reality. We are called to be attentive to what is happening now and embody the love of Jesus with one another in new and different ways, grounded in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. While Paul challenged the Corinthians to change the way they related to one another, he did so while reminding them of the timeless gift that Jesus had given them. And perhaps this language is familiar to you. It makes up our communion liturgy. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Lately, I've been reading the work of Priya Parker, who wrote the book called The Art of Gathering, especially as the challenges of being together after the trauma of COVID become more and more apparent in all of our circles. Thinking about her work in relationship to worship and a community of faith is fascinating. The way she talks about the purpose of a gathering or a meeting is particularly helpful in relationship to this text. She writes about how powerful, meaningful, transformative gatherings have a bold and sharp purpose. I like those descriptions, bold and sharp purpose. In this letter to the Corinthians, Paul was reminding them about their purpose in gathering, both as a faith community in general and when remembering the Last Supper. Their purpose was a bold and sharp one to remember Jesus and proclaim the Lord's saving death until he came again. The purpose of their gathering was not just to fellowship together and shoot the breeze. Its purpose was not to cling to social customs that neglected their neighbor. The purpose of their gathering was to remember the life-altering reality of Jesus' sacrifice and proclaim that, embody that, tell the truth about that over and over until Jesus returned. This strange season that we find ourselves in now invites us to ask some big questions about how and why we gather as a faith community here in these pews. Why do we come to worship? Is it to feel comforted? Is it to feel like we're not alone? Like we're a part of something bigger than ourselves? Those things happen in worship frequently but are they the purpose of worship? Are they the reason that we gather? I think a lot of us might define the purpose of worship a little differently, and I don't want to advocate for just one way of articulating it. But I think this text is challenging us to define that purpose. Do we gather for worship or for communion to feel something? 
Or do we gather as a response to something? Our Reformed faith tradition emphasizes God's action, that God is constantly initiating grace, constantly initiating a relationship with us and all of creation, and that we are given this opportunity to respond. Worshiping God is not chasing after feeling a certain way, but about responding to what God has done and is doing in our midst. We worship God. We praise God. We make a claim about the uniquely powerful message of the gospel, that it changes everything for the better. And so if we are aware of the bold and sharp purpose of worship, of gathering together, and we are challenged to wait for one another as we build new ways of relating to each other, how? How do we do that? How do we wait for one another? How do we let go of what we're clinging to so that something new might come to be? How do we not let our anxiety about change cause division in our communities that we care about? Paul had some very practical advice. Wait for one another. Wait for one another. On one level, he meant that very literally. (laughs) Wait until everyone was there. Wait until everyone had some food and drink in front of them. Make sure that everyone had enough. But on another level, that idea involves a level of kindness that we're called to extend. Wait for one another. This is a hard season. We're all tired and depleted. We have all experienced a loss of some kind. We are being tasked with building something new together to be creative together, but that's hard to do when we're tired. When we wait for one another, we give space. We give grace. We give the benefit of the doubt. We assume that others' intentions are good, even if their actions fall short. We don't rush to return to what was without reflecting on what the current needs are right in front of us. Waiting for one another means softening our tone, holding our expectations lightly, and being willing to figure things out together. In Jesus, all of us have been given a new life, new ways to live. Other events of our lives push us into new ways of living too, But when we return to the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, two things happen. We are reminded again of the immense love God has for each and every one of us, the immense love that God has for you now and always. And we're reminded that it is that love that makes us capable of waiting for one another in the first place. When we gather at the communion table And remember the sacrifice and gift of Jesus. When we gather here in worship, we are strengthened to do what seems impossible. We are strengthened to wait for one another, to give grace and space, to extend kindness. This is good news. May we choose it. May we cherish it. Amen.